The Woach Pod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Welcome into another edition of the Woach Pod. Here with the father of Clippers play-by-play man, Noah <laughs> Eagle. It's Ian Eagle. I love it. Let's yeah. let's make the transition, Woj. I'm just it's, ready to be the dad. I'm I'm cool with that. It's uh well, this is obviously this is Ian Eagle, one of the preeminent voices on the NBA. You know him with Turner on the national level, and of course, as a voice of the Nets now in his 26th season on the Nets. It doesn't feel like you're old enough to have been doing anything for 26 years <laughs> professionally. It is hard to I wrap am. my brain around. The funny part, Woj, is uh, I made an appearance at the draft a couple years ago when it was in Brooklyn, and I had some fans come up to me, and one gentleman in particular comes up to me and says, oh, Iron Eagle, great to meet you. I've been listening to you since I was a little kid. I'm looking at him. I go, dude, you're 60 years old. What are you talking about? <laughs> this guy was completely bald, certainly was on the verge of having grandchildren. And I'm, I'm saying, sir, let's do the math here. I don't believe that you are accurate in that assessment. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing to think, Ian, from the exit 16W Nets, one of the great, Bob Ryan came up with that, which was, there was never anything more perfect. That's exactly Fantastic. what they were. Exit 16W off the Jersey Turnpike in the old Meadowlands. And, and think of that, your first season on the Nets, Ian, two stars are Kenny Anderson and Derek mm-hmm. Coleman, your Syracuse yep. brother in D.C. Butch Beard is the head coach. <laughs> and, and now you've got another ex-NBA point guard as the head coach of the Nets, Steve Nash and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. It is, it's not that the Nets have had a great deal of success yet in Brooklyn. They, they haven't. They may be on the cusp of it now, but it's like a different organization. When you think of how mom and pop it was in the Meadowlands to now with different ownership and being in Brooklyn, in the new arena, it's really a line of demarcation for that organization having gone over there. Well, you you can't even begin to compare. When I think back to that first year, 1994-95, I get hired as the radio guy by John Spolstra dad of Eric Spolstra. He's the president of the Nets at the time. He took a chance on me. One of my first days as an employee, I go out to training camp. It's the first day in Princeton, New Jersey. So that's where they're going to hold training camp. And the draft pick that year was Yinka Dare. Yeah. So I walk in, I know nobody. And I walk into the gym and everyone's huddled up in an area, the media. So I head over to that area and Yinka Dare comes jogging out of the locker room and everyone's staring at him. And he looks like an Adonis. Mm -hmm. His body is NBA ready. He grabs a ball. He dribbles it once. He dribbles it twice. He attempts a turnaround jumper. This is the new era of the Nets. And the ball goes over the backboard, (laughs) over the backboard. And Derek Coleman is on the court about to get ready to, to practice. And he points to Yinka. He goes, what's his name? Yinka? It's more like Stinka. <laughs> and that's it. That's my, that's my first day on the job. I go, oh, my goodness. What is going on here? And that was a sign of things to come for that particular team. So Derek, who I knew in college, I knew him well. 
I'd been to dinner with him at Syracuse. We had been at Grimaldi's, for those who might recall uh, that joint up in Syracuse. Uh, Derek paid for nothing at the meal, by the yeah. way. Just told me. I don't, I don't think many Orangemen paid for much no. at Grimaldi's. He just turned He turned to me. We were with David Bartlestein, our mutual friend who was a walk-on on the team, brother Mark Bartlestein, one of the great NBA agents. And he turns to me after a huge meal. And I said, well, how much do I owe? He goes, there's no bill coming. I said, oh, okay. He goes, well, leave a tip, man. Leave 20. I was like, all right, I'll leave 20. So Derek, I know him. I get to the Nets. I assume Derek is going to want to hang and bond. We're on our first flight for a preseason game. And I'm sitting behind him. So I put my stuff underneath the seat in front of me. And Derek turns around. I'm sitting next to Mike O'Corn, my radio analyst. And Derek turns around. At this point, he had not said a word to me. Like completely had phased me out. He turns around. I think, oh, he's going to say, yo, what's up, Ian? He turns around. He says, yo. I go, hey, what's up, Derek? He goes, get your stuff off my feet. I go, what? <laughs> he goes, your stuff is on my feet. I went, oh, I'm so sorry. And Mike turns to me. He goes, I thought you knew him. I go, I swear I know him. It took until the first West Coast trip, which was over Thanksgiving break. We're at the hotel bar in Portland. There is a pool table and Derek is playing pool. And I think he had a couple in him. And he sees me and Raff is there, Bill Raftery. And he's like, yo, E. Like, my name's Ian, but I took the E as Eagle. He goes, yo, E. And he comes over, he gives me a huge bear hug. He goes, what, what, you, what are you doing? I go, I'm the play-by-play guy for the Nets. <laughs> I've been with you for the last month. Hey, and we were great after that. Like that was something clicked in that moment. And that gives you a little bit of an indicator of what that first season was like with that group. It's not like that anymore. Oh, it is. Uh, it's funny. You mentioned Yankadare. And I remember I was working in Waterbury at the time and he had an agent, I believe late, the late Larry, Larry Gilman was his agent. Oh, wow. I believe Larry backed up his station wagon to a dorm at GW, got Yanka out of there after a sophomore year. Like yep. Mike Jarvis was the coach. I remember reading this and whisked them off to the NBA. And he was a, a late lottery pick, I think, of the Nets, maybe first round. He was their first round pick. Oh, no, no, no. He, late lottery pick. Willis yeah. Reed was the GM at the time. Yeah. Willis loved him, loved the the body. He just thought this guy's going to be an NBA player. And one last point with Willis. So this is the Hall of Famer, Willis Reed. I am obviously thrilled to be working in some capacity to get to know the captain, Willis Reed. I introduced myself for the first time. I said, hey, uh, Willis, I'm uh, Iron Eagle. He went, all right, Iron Eagle. I said, well, I mean, it, it's Iron. He was like, no, Iron Eagle. I went, I think we're going with Iron. And that was it. For the rest of my relationship, anytime I saw Willis, like, hey, Iron Eagle. And it wasn't separate names it was just one word iron eagle all the time <laughs> i'm not going to correct willis reed so we just lived with it he loved yinka here was a problem the, the late yinka dara yinka passed away mm -hmm. one of the first trips part of that west coast swing with the portland game i alluded to we go to seattle but if you remember in 1994 they were not playing at key arena they had to play in tacoma so Butch Beard, I think, knew someone in the area. We ended up going out two days earlier than we had to. We were in Tacoma for four days. Four days we're in Tacoma 
to play one game. So we're checking out of the hotel in Tacoma. I'm online and it's Yinka, Kenny Anderson, and me. We've been in Tacoma for four days. And he turns around as we're about to check out of the hotel. He turns to Kenny Anderson, Yinka Dara. He goes, yo, are we in Phoenix? And Kenny goes, it's going to be a long season, big fella. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him. I'm trying to think if he's telling family members, like, hey, yeah, I walked around Phoenix. Great coffee. Little rainy. I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> it was story after story. He, we went to, I was invited to a workout with Yinka Dare before that draft. I want to say it was in the Milford, I believe his Larry, Larry Gilman was a Milford, Connecticut guy. We we're in a high school gym or somewhere. My friend Les Carpenter, who's at the Washington Post now, mm -hmm. he was at the Bridgeport Post. I worked at Waterbury. He invites us down. And I remember sitting in a chair with him and Yinka came out and just they were running him through the typical empty gym, no defender, jump yeah. hook workout. And he hits a jump hook and maybe hits another. And I remember Larry Gilman, his agent, jumping out of his chair and screaming, it's effing Akeem. It's <laughs> effing Akeem. It's not. And I said, well, he physically does look like Akeem, but not much after that. No, uh, no. Yanko uh, uh, was was a very nice person that uh, was never going to live up to that standing. Then Ed O'Bannon was later drafted by Willis, another one that he thought was going to be part of the core, and that never materialized. Ed is a great guy and has actually done some wonderful things mm -hmm. on the West Coast in regards to the NCAA and protecting property and copyright, but uh, they just were never going to get out of their own way at that point. Then they hire Calipari. That didn't go well for did the not, most part. So did not go well. The iterations, Woj, of this to now get to this moment where I am actually being asked to appear on podcasts as a guest because the Nets are credible and relevant. It's, it's quite a departure. Well, before we get into these Nets, there was one more, th there were a few incidents in that season, but there was a war eagle named Chris Morris from Auburn <laughs> University. Yes. Uh, as opposed to Iron Eagle. Yes. And in the spirit of James Harden and I want to trade and get me out of here, Chris Morris's trade request pre-social media, pre-everything, yeah. was one of the most unforgettable. It was late in that 94-95 season. He had a couple years earlier. Uh, when Bill Fitch was the coach, refused to go into a game. That was Correct. a big, that was a thing. And then 94-95, he writes on his sneakers, trade me. Yes, simple, to the point, and made his point. Eventually ended up with the Utah Jazz, just not that year. He had to stay the entire season. A few things hit me when when you mentioned that story. First of all, it's obviously my first year. I'm employed by the Nets. So my checks are printed by the New Jersey Nets. I'm not working for a, a different entity. I'm hired by the team. So I'm working with Michael Corrin, who is one of the best human beings that you will ever be around. Mm -hmm. Star at North Carolina, star at Hudson Catholic in Jersey City, uh, eventually made his way into the NBA with the Nets, with the then Washington Bullets, cup of coffee here and there, and was a longtime analyst before he became a coach. And I'm working with him that year on radio, and I couldn't have asked for a better partner, more welcoming, all of it. And I think we discussed it prior to the game. I said, do I report this? He's like, oh, no, 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 
<laughs> we can't. We can't possibly talk about this. So it didn't happen on the radio side. Trade me never actually happened on radio. So Chris had this propensity pregame. I don't know if you remember this, Woj. He would take half-court shots from the tunnel. And at the old Meadowlands, you didn't exit through the sides. Both teams would cross to the middle at halftime and exit through the middle, which did not make for harmonious moments. If you had some kind of issue or cantankerous occurrence, both teams had to cross over and enter through the middle to exit the arena into their respective locker rooms. So Chris Morris would go to that area and launch, not two shots, 10 shots at the end of of pregame warmups. And everybody was like, where is the ball even coming from? And guys would ask, well, why does he do that? And supposedly once he said, I may shoot it in a game. You don't know. I may shoot that. (laughs) So Chris, you know, I attempted to, to get to know him that first year. I'd say hello nothing would happen. He would kind of nod occasionally. He would give me like a, "Uh uh-huh. And that was it. The next year he's on the Utah jazz and the Nets are playing the jazz in Salt Lake city. I moved to the TV side. I'm getting ready to do the standup. And Chris Morris is on the layup line. He exits the layup line. He comes up directly to me. He goes, yo, Ian, what's up, man? How you been? I go, what? He goes, what's going on? What's happening with you? He asked me like five. I I said, we had an entire year to bond and you had no interest whatsoever. But on the layup line before Nets and Jazz, he wanted to go through the the full story. Yet another character from that group. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Kyrie Irving grew up in Jersey, a Nets fan, not quite of that era. He's not that old, but grew up uh, through, you know, his, there's just been different incarnations of Nets. There have been some, there were some great runs in that organization and then typically it would fall off and it would, but now I, not only is it the most anticipated Nets season ever, I don't know if there is, it's one thing for Nets fans in the New York area, everybody, but nationally, I don't think there's a team that people are more curious to see, maybe more excited to see than to see Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving play together. There, there's never been a year like this for the Nets. No doubt about it. And, and Woj, what I have seen from a buzz point of view and anticipation, I have not experienced in what's going to be my 27th year associated with the organization. And I think it's it's twofold. The obvious part is you've got Kevin Durant, you've got Kyrie Irving. And the curiosity of those two that chose to be in Brooklyn, this is not an arranged marriage. This was their decision together. And then the second part of it is that the ramp up 
has been <laughs> extended. This isn't just it happened a couple of months ago and now away we go. Kevin Durant had to sit out an entire season and then some, if you include the bubble as well. So we're talking about 554 days waiting to see Kevin Durant back on a basketball court. And you're right about the curiosity. It changes the dynamic in the Eastern Conference because it's so wide open. This team could go out and really be the team to beat. Or if it doesn't work, if there are issues, there are many people waiting to see if it fails. So you've got anticipation on both sides, people that are excited about the possibilities. And then there are people that are also anticipating that it may not work. And there have been a lot of people around the NBA that have been trying to poke holes through it. So I think it's it's the duality of it that makes it so interesting for this upcoming season. And with Steve Nash as head coach, who so I think his and you saw Kyrie talk about it the other day about now, listen, they haven't played a game yet. They haven't. <laughs> They haven't lost the game. They haven't had a losing streak. It's, you know, it's the preseason and all those. But the way it's been described in me, the way Steve has gone about it and how he's commanded respect there. And he and I talked about it early. We did a podcast this summer. And and I think he talked a lot about it with Sean Marks when he they were talking about him taking the job was, I think there's a part of Steve that, listen, I know what I don't know yet. Yep. And I'm going to, I've got to learn this position in a way, every other first-time coach has to do and surrounding himself with Mike D'Antoni and Jacques Vaughn and, and, and a very good staff certainly is a is helpful in that way. But I think watching Steve Nash navigate this is going to be fascinating because it does have to be collaborative. It's not going to be – you're not going to be a dictatorial coach with the Nets. And by the way, that's not Steve's personality anyway. And, and I, I think – I think having D'Antoni, who's always shown an ability, and Steve knows us playing for him, having him there, he's known he's had to do it in different stops, certainly in Houston with James Harden. There's a lot of ownership you've got to give to star players, especially Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, that you know that I think might really fit this group pretty well. Yeah, the modern NBA head coach, we all try to figure out what are the attributes? What are the characteristics that you need to have? And I don't think there's any one straight answer. Eric Spolstra, to me, has been a shining example of paying your dues and doing it in a way where you build trust with your players based on your knowledge, based on your acumen, based on your smarts, based on your communication skills. But he was a very good player. He was a college player and played at a Division I program, but obviously did not have the resume that some others might have. Steve Nash has this incredible playing resume and had such a high basketball IQ. And yet, when you talk to him, there's a humility that comes with him that usually you don't assign with a superstar athlete. And I think that's the biggest key, to me at least, why this really could work. His ability to communicate and talk to the lead guy, the best player on your team, and the 15th player on your team. He can do that because of who he is and what he's been through as a player. In addition, there's an affability there 
there's a likability that just is natural to him. If you talk to him, he is naturally curious. It's not, I have all the answers. It doesn't mean he doesn't have conviction or confidence. He has all those things, but he does want to learn. And you're right about D'Antoni and Jacques Vaughn and Ime Udoka, who very well could be a head coach in this league down the road. You bring in an Amari Stoudemire, who doesn't have a frontline role on the coaching staff, but developing big men and the, again, relationship that Steve had with Amare and the credibility. Uh, I just think when you mix all those things together, and here's the other part, Woj, in every walk of life, you know, this is one aspect that we sometimes don't put at the forefront of whether or not someone's going to be successful. He's really smart. He's just a smart guy. So Steve Kerr, as an example, who I know uh, you've gotten to know through the years as a player, as a broadcaster, as a coach. I did a few games with him at Turner. I was just blown away by him individually, uh, self-deprecating, uh, very confident in what he was doing, but not trying to tell you he's the smartest guy in the room. Uh, funny, but in a sneaky way. I feel like Steve has uh, a lot of the same characteristics. And uh, my hope is that uh, he can juggle this and manage the personalities because that's really what it's going to come down to. From a basketball standpoint, I'm not worried. He's got great support. I And the impact that COVID is having, uh, is already having on the season, is going to have on this year, I think just from a broadcasting point of view, I would imagine some of the national games you're doing, you won't be in the arena. You'll be at home or in a studio. And the Nets, you'll be in the building for most of the home games, right, Ian? Yeah, we'll be there for all the home games and we will be there for the road games. So it's our permanent location. Obviously, for the home games, the game will be happening in front of us. We will be at the top of the first level, though, not close, not the normal, intimate feeling that you get being courtside. And for the road games, we'll be calling it off a monitor, very similar to what we did in the bubble format. All the local regional networks got to call the games, which was great, but you didn't call them from Orlando. So yeah, it's different. Woj, I've had experience calling a, a bunch of different events just from a remote setting. I've called NBA finals that way. I've called golf tournaments, tennis tournaments, other basketball events, world basketball championships. It's different and you accept it uh, from a play-by-play -play man's point of view. The biggest key is just energy, recognizing that you're not going to get the juice. You're not going to get the crowd. You're not going to get the ambiance and you've got to bring a little extra something to, to make sure those those highlights have some oomph to them. Yeah, and that's and I think the players, especially in the bubble early on, that was the biggest adjustment for them. And listen, guys are used to playing growing up. You play games with no fans. They certainly aren't used to it at the NBA level. It's funny, the guys who played a lot of G League basketball, they were used to it. They play in front of, you know, some places there's huge crowds, some places not so much. Uh, but I think when you got into the playoffs, and you saw the difference it made where the emotion can carry a team. It's game three and you're returning home. Yep. And maybe you split the series 1-1 on the road or you're down 2-0. And that game three crowd, the energy, like you always see a blow. That, that, that game three 
is a blowout sometimes in the NBA, right? The, the juice of the home team, the visiting team goes on the road. The role players don't quite play as well on the road. The great ones can play great anywhere. And all of that went out the window, I thought, in the bubble. And you saw these very uh, more uneven performances. I wonder what that's going to look like now teams are traveling again and they're on the road. But you're not walking into that hostile environment. I think it's not going to be as pronounced as the bubble, but it's still going to be a little bit of a funhouse mirror view yeah. of, of what, it's, what it's really like in the NBA. Yeah, I, I found some of the promos, like the day the schedule came out, uh, I found them comical, some of them, because, and look, every network does it. You, you try to pump up your game. You get it. That, that's part of the deal. But when you hear the announcement, Kevin Durant makes his return to the Bay Area. I'm like, no, there are no fans. This is not, it's not the, yes, he's going back to the San Francisco area, but it's not going to be the same. Kyrie Irving finally returns to Boston. Like, yeah, but no, they're just going to play. There's nobody there. So I, I get it. I get that we just have a natural instinct to say, eh, tough to win on the road. Yeah, but this year it's not quite the same. Travel, let, let's call it what it is. It's still travel. You still got to get on a plane. Uh, there are going to be more buses than normal. Normally it would be players on one bus, staff on another. Now there's going to be four buses for these teams because they want to separate and avoid any kind of spreader on a team where it's a domino effect. So the experience is going to be completely different, but I think the professional pride that you alluded to in the bubble, it's going to come into play here for this NBA regular season. That's what struck me the most. Stan Van Gundy and I happened to call the first game of the restart, and I didn't really know what to expect down in Orlando. And within the first five minutes, and look, the NBA, they knew what they were doing. It was Zion Williamson, first game back against the Utah Jazz. And it hit me early that these guys were going hard. They had to be there. They made the decision. These games count. Your numbers count. All of it counts. Somebody is recording this and it's going into the record book. And I do feel even with this season coming up with no fans, these guys care. They're, they're still your, your ego and your pride on the line when you roll out the basketball and it's me against you. And in a strange way, the purity of the game comes back into the forefront because that's all we got. That's it. There's no bells and whistles. There's no cutaway shots of fans screaming and pointing and waving their arms. It's just you against him. Who wins? I am the biggest difference in calling the NBA from when you started and what it was like to be a play-by-play guy in the league to this era is what? Well, for me, it's information. You know, in 1994, to get information was challenging. Pre-internet, to research these games was difficult. So with that, it's been wonderful that there is so much available to you now as you prepare for games. The downside is that the same stuff is available to everybody. Fans, to me, are so much more informed than they've ever been. So as a play-by-play announcer, just to come on the air and say, he's in his fifth year from Virginia Tech, that's not enough. That doesn't get it done. In 1994, 
maybe that worked. Maybe someone would say, honey, did you know he went to Virginia Tech? That, that doesn't fly anymore. You've got to go deeper. You've got to find levels to your preparation. And that to me is the fun part. How do you separate yourself and how do you dig and find something that maybe hasn't been on every broadcast around the country for the game that you're doing? As far as the level of play, uh, the highlights, the energy, look, there were great players when I broke in in 94. I was really lucky. Jordan came back, the electricity in the crowd. Uh, So I always felt like the level of play was really good. It was just more physical. And uh, the officials let some things go a bit more. I think as a play-by-play announcer, the only thing that I've really tried to make a conscious effort of through the years is if it's a highlight and if it's going to live for a long time, you better deliver in the moment. You know, I think in the 90s, all right, I did the best I could with that call, but no one can go back and watch it within seconds or go to YouTube. Now it's there and it's there forever. So I I do take that part of it very seriously. Ian, for all the partners you've had in all the sports, college, NBA, NFL, through the years, are there still most people, maybe especially around kind of the New York area, there wasn't league pass back when you started. Do people still largely identify you and Bill Raftery? Is he the one when people think of Ian Eagle? And it's, I would imagine for you, it's a great, you don't mind that because you love Bill, but, but, but is it you and Raff? Is that how, do people still come to you and say, Hey, ah, watch you guys on the nets. Yeah. That was yeah. A long time ago. I, uh, yeah. I still get that a lot. I still get, Oh, I love you and Raff. And I've been fortunate because I do get to work with them at CBS. So that CBS. relationship yeah. did continue. And I wonder, cause we've not done an NBA game, a net game together. We did some playoff games for NBA TV after he left the nets, but his last year with the nets, whoa, just as hard to believe was 2001, 2002, the year the nets went to the finals. That's the last year. We're talking about 18 years ago. And I want to put it into terms that are are hard sometimes for people to understand. He was a young man at that point. He looked the same. He's had, you know, the white hair, the Leslie Nielsen look for a long time. But that is crazy for me to think where he was then, where he is now. He he obviously was just such a wonderful partner for me, for me to break in to television with Bill Raftery as my partner. I I can't even begin to explain how much I learned, not by him saying, hey, kid, you should do this, do that. Never, never instructed me. I just watched. And by osmosis, I figured it all out. No, I do get that a lot. You know what's funny, Woj? There was a long stretch that I had been doing the Nets and was living in the state of New Jersey. I'm originally from Queens. I had no interest in ever living in what I perceived to be an armpit. Like you grow up in in New York, you think, oh no, New Jersey, that's a cesspool. I will not move there. (laughs) But my wife was from Livingston, New Jersey. And when we got married, I was reverse commuting. We were living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And we end up moving to New Jersey, even though I fought it for years. She said, we really should move to Jersey. I said, I'll move to Fort Lee. I, I need to see the city from where we live. That, that was not the the answer. We ended up 
going deeper. But for a good, I'm not exaggerating, a good five or six years, I would go into a local pizza place where I live and somebody would recognize me and say, hey, Iron Eagle? I'd say, yeah. I said, oh man, loved you on FAN. I loved you on FAN. I said, oh, thank you so much. He said, what do you do now? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in advertising. Yeah. Have you seen the Geico ads? That's me. <laughs> really? That's awesome. Like they had no idea I was doing the Nets games for the first five years, six years. And finally, when Jason Kidd came, yep. that changed everything. And I think because of that, Raph and I, maybe people started to pay attention to our banter. How quickly did you learn working with Raph, traveling with him, that you can't stay out with Raph as long as he's going to stay out. And I, like you can't function personally, professionally, the way Raph has been able to function. I don't know if he still does now, but there's no one like him yeah. in that respect. It took me until year three. So if we had to zero in on a particular year, in the middle of the 96, 97 season, I recognized, now I was young, I was 27 years old at that point. I recognized that he's not human that what he's doing is not human. And his liver was, was placed there by someone above. Like it's not a normal operating liver. So the first two years, I didn't know I was allowed to leave. I was just happy to be there. So I would stay and it would be two in the morning, three in the morning. And he would convince a bartender, and this is not an exaggeration, the guy would have called for last call at one. They'd say, hey, Tony, one more. Come on, where, where do you gotta be? <laughs> and somehow this guy would stay open another two hours. What do you, you want a little Sambuca? You want Sambuca? No, I do not want Sambuca. I want to go to bed. So finally in year three, it would hit midnight and I would just pull the old Irish exit. Finally, I would just say, I'm, I'm done. And I, at first, would tell him, like, hey, Billy, I'm going to go up. And he would get angry. Hey, you're ruining a good party, bird. <laughs> like, okay. And then I would think he's going to be mad at me. And then the next day, he would be on the treadmill doing his dopey walk. <laughs> and I'd go in there at the hotel, and I'd think tentatively that Bill was going to be angry. And I'd say, hey, Billy, go, hey, bird, we had fun last night, huh? Like, oh, he remembers nothing. <laughs> He has no recollection that he ripped me a new one at 3 a.m. Or at this case, I was starting to lead at 2 a.m., 1 a.m. Finally, by year three, I cut it off at midnight. And I realized that our relationship was still going to be strong. So that was it. My favorite Bill Raftery story, and to me, this this tells everything about him. Uh, Pete Lonergan, who was in a, at the time was a college basketball coach. I believe he was at Providence then. Uh, and he was, he ended up the athletic director where a friend of mine, Mike McDonald was the head coach in upstate New York. And it was back when they were scouting Seton Hall. And so he would travel. Um, uh, I actually, I believe he was at Niagara scouting a game at Providence to get it right. And so Seton Hall's there. He scouts the game. Uh, they're going to be playing Seton Hall goes, uh, sees Raph. They, I think they knew each other from like the Jersey shore in the summers. Raph's like, come on, we're going to go out after the game. So he's the assistant coach at Niagara, he goes out with Raph, presumably all night in Providence after the game, and ends up leaving his notes, right? You, 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 he left his notes, I believe, in Raph's 
rental car <laughs> and they're playing them later. And he's got all the diagrams of all the Seton Hall plays on the notes. And now he's returned to Niagara after going with Raph, I believe, all night. And he doesn't return with his breakdown. Here are the plays they run, right? So Raph finds it in his car or wherever he found it. And he mails it back to Niagara. So he has his notes for when they play Seton Hall with a note on his breakdowns. And it said, hey, you got our out-of-bounds play wrong. We actually run it this way. You didn't take the note down right on it. Uh, that's it. The best. That's the it. Best. So, yeah, the indicator is clear. He read your notes <laughs> and he corrected your note. <laughs> Look, I've been I've been really, really fortunate in my career. I've worked with Jim Spinarkle now for 20 plus years on NCAA tournament action. So you build chemistry with a person, not just on the air, but off the air. To me, that's where things stand out. When there's an actual friendship and it translates on the air, people can sniff that out. You know, if you're if you're genuine in in that relationship, then it reveals itself in those moments. And not every moment is X's and O's, and not every moment is a stat or a story. Sometimes there just has to be a human moment between the two broadcasters to resonate with the audience. And to me, that's how it's supposed to be. And I really did learn that from Bill. He just makes everybody around him instantly comfortable. Instantly. I you, One thing you are responsible for, one of the great texting interactions I had with my wife, Amy, I was in Los Angeles for something and she was flying to LA to come spend a few days. And I get a text from her from the plane and it says, Hey, the Eagles are on my flight. Yeah. And I said, Whoa, that's, and you know, if you watch the Eagles documentary, (laughs) you know, you're going, well, I thought they had a private plane. I didn't know they were on tour. And so I said, wow, that's great. Joe Walsh. Yeah. And well, at first she said, I, she yeah. said, but I'm not going to wake him up. I'm not going to wake him up and reintroduce myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, what? When, when did you meet you, the Eagles? You know, Don Henley. Right. And so I text her and I go, and what happened? I say, so the, the, the response then is, uh, wow, no private plane. Hi, huh? Joe Walsh. This is great. And she's like, he has a private plane. Yeah. And wait, she goes, no, I an eagle. Yeah. This I was, an eagle. Whoa, this was like a threes company episode. Yeah. There, there was a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. There was at that point a little bit of back and forth. And then in the end, it all worked out. But yeah, we ended up next year. What my wife and I are flying out. And, you know, again, these are like little moments you remember in your life. She was flying out to the ESPYs. That's where she was meeting. We were flying out to find an apartment for our son who was moving to LA, the aforementioned Noah. And we were going to scout out locations for him because he was somewhere, he was working, I want to say, summer league in Vegas. And we end up next to your wife. I, we must have fallen asleep because she did not want to wake up anyone from the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> We land as we're landing, like I, I connect as she turns to us and starts. She goes, Oh, I I actually just texted my husband that I saw you. 
eventually you texted me saying like, it really was a much better story when she was hanging out with the Eagles, not the Eagles. Yeah. Well, well, listen, hopefully we can all be on flights again like that together. I know none of us want to be I hope so. that close to anybody uh, on an airplane, but uh, I, and this was a lot of fun. I'm glad we got to do it. It'll, I, I know I'll see you out in Brooklyn one of these days, have a great holiday season and a uh, lot, lot of fun having you on here. Woj, my pleasure. The fact that you did not check your phone once during this interview to me, I'm going to take that as a big win. I got your attention for a long enough period for you not to check your phone. There might've been seven things that already broke in the NBA and you may not be aware of it right now. Uh, well, I had Ian Eagle on my podcast, so that's <laughs> I, I don't I don't care what else is happening in the NBA. But uh, good to see you, my friend, and, and we'll luck. talk soon. All the best. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thanks to our guest this week, the great Ian Eagle. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure also to listen to the Low Post with Zach Lowe and the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst. Have a great week, guys. Catch you soon. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.